glorify God? Does it get any better than this? Can I get an amen? All right. Weather doesn't hurt either, right? So question. How many of you like to watch movies? Okay. Figure it'd be quite a few. Now, personally, I like to watch movies, but I will be honest with you, I do not believe that there has been much coming out of Hollywood lately that's worth watching. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. But I don't think so. But I do like to watch movies. So what I find myself doing is watching movies that I've seen already. Oldies. You guys like to watch oldies? Old movies? Yeah. Anybody ever seen the movie Ghostbusters? Yeah, Ghostbusters. It's a great movie. It's an entertaining little comedy starring Bill Murray. I think Billy Murray is a comic genius. And it's a story about these university professors that catch ghosts in New York City. And there's one scene in particular that I think is absolutely hilarious. So the Ghostbusters have come to the conclusion that there is an event about to take place an event of apocalyptic proportions that will have a negative, dramatic effect on the city of New York, maybe even destroy it. But there are some in the government who do not believe them. They think that it's just a sham and that these guys are con artists. But they all wind up in the mayor's office. And Dr. Venkman, who is played by Bill Murray, is explaining to the mayor that the city is headed for a disaster, as he says, of biblical proportions. I mean, real Old Testament stuff. Fire and brimstone coming down from the sky. Dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. And the mayor says, okay, okay. I get it. This could be bad. But what if you're wrong? And Dr. Vinkman says, if I'm wrong, I go to jail quietly. But if I'm right, you, Lenny, will have saved the lives of millions of registered voters. See, the mayor had a decision to make. He had to decide if what he was being told was right or if it was wrong. And his decision would have a direct effect on the city. And if you know the story, the mayor makes the right decision. He believes the Ghostbusters, and the Ghostbusters then go on to save the city, and they are the heroes. Consequences. Consequences. There are consequences to all of the decisions that we make. And quite honestly, we make decisions every day, all day long, that have consequences. Now, some of the decisions that we make are mundane, and the consequence is somewhat trivial. You know, for instance, the route that you take to work may mean the difference between sitting in traffic for an hour or a smooth commute, or longer if you're headed to the Chicago land area. Other decisions have huge implications, like whether or not you should marry a certain person. That's a big one, right? You married people would all agree with me. 
these big decisions that we make have direct effects on our lives. The decisions that we make and the way we react to events that take place around us have drastic and sometimes life or death consequences. Now today we're finishing a series of messages that's looked at the life of Jesus. And our focus has been on the final weeks of Jesus' life here on earth. And I think we've learned a lot over the last three weeks. And that includes Good Friday. I hope that you had a chance to spend some time with us meditating on Good Friday. Because we learned something there as well. But you know, it's really interesting. And we've talked about this all along as we've looked at the last weeks of Jesus' life. We see a lot of confusion about this guy, right? We see a lot of confusion surrounding this man, Jesus. And quite honestly, our goal has been to clear up any confusion in our minds. Because we want to know the truth about Jesus. The decisions that we make about him, in particular, who he truly is, and the way that we react to what happened to him while he was in this world, have epic and eternal consequences for each one of us. Now going back to week one of our series, if you remember, we looked at a pivotal passage from the book of Mark that began this journey through and up to the last days of Jesus' life. If you're with us, you might remember that Jesus' ministry transitioned at that point, right? He was focused before on his healing and his teaching. And then his ministry pivoted to preparing the disciples for what was coming next. Most importantly, in our study, we answered the question, who is this man, Jesus? And we saw that there was confusion among the people. Remember, some said that it was John the Baptist. Some said that he was Elijah. Some said that he was just a, a prophet. Unfortunately, that confusion has continued to this present day. But we learned through our study that Jesus is none of those. He's none of those. He was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was the one and only Son of God. And Jesus made it clear that the things that were about to happen to him, in particular, the torture and death by crucifixion, that was the culmination of his ministry. That was why he came in the first place. He was the long-awaited Messiah. Come, as he tells us in Mark chapter 10, to give his life as a ransom for many. In week two, we looked at the confusion of the crowds that welcomed him into Jerusalem. We saw them praising Jesus and thanking God for sending them this king that was going to establish the throne of Israel. That's what they were expecting, right? That's what they wanted. They wanted a political hero. Someone to free them from the Roman oppression. Jesus was that hero that they wanted. So they thought. Again, confusion, right? Confusion about why Jesus came. And when the people came to realize that Jesus was not going to be that hero for them, that same crowd that had been praising him just a couple of days later, earlier, 
had now turned on him. And they were calling for Jesus to be executed. And we learned that, yes, Jesus came to pay the ransom for our sins. But we also learned that he came that we might have life. And might have it more abundantly. And we learned that we can experience that abundant life by living with a committed faith. See, knowing who Jesus is and why he came is critical, critical to living that contented, abundant life. It's our faith in Jesus and in the work of the cross that allows us to stand in the face of trials and difficulties that come our way. On Good Friday, we realize that there's confusion about how a day like that can be called good. How could that day be called good? And I'm sure the disciples back in the day were wondering the same thing. I mean, here's their teacher, their rabbi, this man that they've been following for three years, hanging on a cross, so beaten and disfigured that he's barely recognizable. And he's hanging there, dying. How could that be good? But then Jesus utters that single Greek word, tetelestai, meaning it is finished. Jesus had completed the task for which he had come. And with this cry of victory, Jesus clears up any confusion about how this Friday can be good. Our sin debt is paid in full. But you know, the confusion about Jesus didn't end there. Because the story doesn't end there. Yes, Jesus died. There's no disputing that. But friends, we know, we know that on the third day he rose again, just like he said he would. He told his disciples, right? He told us three times that these things must happen, necessary according to the will of God, and it happened. And yet there was confusion. And we see this confusion in the early church at Corinth. And just like the confusion that we've looked at over the past weeks, this confusion still persists to today. So this morning, we're going to explore this, and we're going to clear up any confusion in anyone's mind about this glorious resurrection. Now we find our text for this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to look at Mainly, verses 12 through 20. We'll look at a couple other selected passages as well. But that's kind of where we're going to live for this morning. Now, I think it's really important to understand that Paul is writing this letter to the church of Corinth because of their confusion. That's why he wrote it. They were confused. And it wasn't just confusion about the resurrection, there's many subjects that Paul addresses in this letter, but in chapter 15, 
he begins to dig into this doctrinal issue of the resurrection. So if we read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 12, Paul writes this, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now, we want to begin our exegesis of this passage by understanding that Paul is writing this not because the Corinthians did not necessarily believe that Christ rose. To be honest with you, most actually did. If we looked earlier in the chapter, we'd see that Paul talks about sharing the gospel with them, which always included Christ's death and resurrection. See, Paul saw those two things as inextricably linked. And that's the pattern of preaching that we see throughout the New Testament. It's referred to as the kerygma, the linking of the death and resurrection. And in verse 11 of chapter 15, Paul says to the Corinthians, and so you believe. So Paul preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, preached the death and resurrection, and some of them believed in Christ's resurrection. What they didn't believe is that they too would one day be resurrected. But Paul emphasizes here that those who deny their own resurrection also deny the resurrection of Jesus. And it's interesting that the, the Sadducees, you guys have heard of them before, right? The Sadducees, they were a, a part of the ruling Jewish body. The Sadducees, they denied bodily resurrection. They didn't believe in it. Despite the passages in the Old Testament that allude to the resurrection. I wish we had a lot of time because there's a lot of passages in the Old Testament that speak to the resurrection. But this is some of the source of confusion for the church at Corinth, right? The Sadducees, they didn't believe. Reading on, we see that Paul then lists out the consequences, the consequences of denying their own resurrection. Verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So here we see two dire consequences of denying the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. Paul says that all the disciples preaching and teaching, and actually all preaching and teaching from the very beginning, is worthless. Everything I say, everything that any preacher who preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ says is of no use. We may as well spend our time and our resources and our Sundays on something else. But I'll be honest, friends. If I did not believe, no, if I did not know that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, I wouldn't be here. I would not be here. I wouldn't be preaching. I wouldn't be working hard to build God's kingdom in Lowell. It'd be senseless. Notice I said, if I didn't know. More than that, Paul says in verse 15, 
More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. So Paul here says that he and the other apostles, and us for that matter, are what the Greeks call pseudo-martyrists. Pseudo-martyrists. Pseudo meaning false, martyrists meaning witnesses. False witnesses. Paul's saying that they're liars if. They're liars. Because they testified to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if they're liars, then there's no resurrection at all. That means that we have no hope after death, which makes this life meaningless. And then that existential worldview that we see, you know, you live, you die, and that's it. Then that becomes reality. Man, what a horrible place to be. What a horrible place to be if there is no resurrection. I love the way Paul crafts this argument, right? It's if, then, but. If, then, but. In verse 16, Paul tells us, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Could not be any clearer here, right? Could not be any clearer. And this is the first of four points that Paul makes in verses 16 through 19. Verse 16, if there's no resurrection, then Christ has not been raised either. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So Paul here is reiterating the fact that if there is no resurrection, our faith is useless. Worse yet, we are still dead in our sins. Now you say, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Jesus died for our sins. Well, that is absolutely true. But that cannot be the end of the story. See, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then death has power over him. If death has power over him, then he is not God. If he is not God, he cannot pay the ransom for my sins. If my ransom is not paid, then I am still dead in my sins. See how critical the resurrection is? It's incredibly important. Boils down to this, is what Paul is saying. If Jesus is not risen, he's unable to save us from our sins. It's that simple. Paul makes his third point in verse 18. He says, Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Now, just so we're clear here, when Paul talks about falling asleep, he's not talking, talking about what you guys are doing while I'm preaching, right? No. Falling asleep is a euphemism for death. In other words, everyone who's died up to this point, they're lost forever. They're gone, vanished. No spirit, no life after death, nothing. Fourth point we find in verse 19. He says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
I mean, what, what a sad lot we are if we've placed our faith and our hope in a lie, in a sham. If we don't have something beyond this life to look forward to, why hassle with the problems of being a Christian? We know that being a Christian, especially in this day and age, is not easy. Remember all that stuff about sacrifice and, and maybe even persecution? You know, denying yourself, taking up your cross, following him? That's not easy. And if we've based our lives on a lie, we are to be pitied. We are to be pitied. Because we've staked our lives on something that has little or no value. But, but, friends, here is the good news. Right here in verse 20. But, Paul says, negating all that other stuff. But, if Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Friends, Jesus is alive. Amen. He rose from the dead on the third day, just like he said he would. Remember, Jesus told his disciples that he must be handed over. He must suffer and die. And he must, he must be raised from the dead. Friends, it is the resurrection of Christ that validates everything that took place up to that point. It validates the righteousness he achieved by living a sinless life. It validates all his teachings and his healings. It validates the death that he died for us. And it validates, friends, the fact that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one and only Son of God. Romans 1 tells us that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. When Jesus claimed the victory over death, that changed history. That changed everything. Our faith is not useless. We're no longer slaves to sin and doomed to an eternity in hell. No, our ransom has been paid by the death, and it's been validated, authenticated by the resurrection. How do, how do we know? How do we know that this is true? How do we know that Jesus rose on the third day? Friends, it is an historical fact recorded here in numerous passages in the New Testament, written down for us by people that were there. They saw the risen Jesus. Paul spends the first portion of this particular chapter demonstrating beyond all doubt that Jesus rose from the grave. He writes back in verse 4 that Jesus was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. In other words, go ask them though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. Paul 
Paul was there. Jesus rose from the dead. This is not some sham. This is not a conspiracy. These things happened according to the will and the word of God. And if you have any questions, any doubts about the veracity of the scriptures, I encourage you to join us in the coming weeks because we're going to be doing a deep dive into the Bible, a deep dive into the word of God. But make no mistake, friends, this was all written down so that we would know. My goal over the past week is that we would all come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as Paul clearly illustrates in his preaching, that includes the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you know that Jesus came into this world to die to pay the ransom for your sins? Do you know that? Do you know that he came that we might have life now in this world and have it more abundantly? Do you know that Jesus rose again on that first Easter morning, victorious over the grave, so that we too may live with him for all eternity? See, that's what Paul is referring to here at the end of verse 20 when he points to Jesus as the first fruits, the first fruits. See, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is a foretaste. It is a picture of what we too will experience someday. In Romans 6, 5, Paul tells us, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's the glory of the gospel. Consequences. Consequences. The decisions we make and how we react to events have consequences. And who we decide that this man Jesus is and how we react to his death and resurrection have the greatest consequences of all. The facts are clear. We've gone to great lengths to clear up any confusion. Eternity hangs in the balance. Please, I hope you know that. Have you committed your life to Christ? If you haven't, I pray, I pray that you would do it now. Today, right now. He's, he's waiting for you. He loves you and he longs for a relationship with you. And he loves you so much that he wants to be with you forever. That's love. This person, Jesus, our only hope for eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you and, and praise you and, and just, Lord, we're, we thank you so much and we are in awe of the death and 
resurrection of Jesus. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that your son came willingly to die, to pay that ransom, that we might have life and that we might have life forever. And Lord, I just pray for all my brothers and sisters here, and I pray especially, Lord, for those who, who are just trying to figure out who you are, trying to, trying to figure out who this Jesus person is, and, and is this real? And I pray that you would make that decision today, that Jesus is real, that his death and resurrection is real, and that he died for you. Lord, we thank you so much for that blessing, the reason that we celebrate this Easter morning, Lord. We thank you, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.